If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Guys, I am so pumped. Literally, I'm fangirling it over here. I just finished this book and we have this author, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She's associate dean in the graduate school and an associate professor of history at Baylor and the author of this most amazing book. I hope everyone gets it at the end of this podcast, just releasing. It's called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Welcome, Dr. Barr. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So I don't know if you know this, but um, I have actually shared my story and and spoken in chapel at Baylor probably four or five times in the last 10 years. Yeah, I knew your name. Your name looked really familiar to me, but, you know, sometimes I didn't connect. I didn't try to connect the dots yet. So probably would find, <laughs> if I look, but that's great. Yes. So, you know, obviously sharing my story of sexual abuse and just mm-hmm. the healing journey. Yeah. Probably four or five times. And I am a local coffee shop, like snob. Right. I love wherever I'm going to speak. I love to find the local coffee shops and that common grounds, I think is what it's called in Waco. Yes. I grounds. am obsessed with that place. Yeah, I've been, it's really funny. Um, you know, I, I was a Baylor undergrad and my, three of my four siblings went to Baylor. And so my sister's sweet mate actually started Common Grounds. What? <laughs> Blog that my sister's old. Well, she'll be mad at me if I say how much older she is. <laughs> She's not actually that much older, but she was a junior at Baylor when I started, junior or senior. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so we have a long time connection to common grounds oh, and it's, that is awesome. it's been my favorite coffee shop, uh, for, for a very long time. We also have mm. dichotomy in town though, which is really good. Oh. And then fabled, which is our okay. bookstore our indie yes. bookstore. And yes. oh my gosh, they have really good coffee and drinks too. So we are lucky for the size of town. We are to have as many independent <laughs> coffee shops. Absolutely. That's so cool. I mean, I totally picture you just being there writing. Oh, that's what I do in my town. Like I do, you know, I'd rather the, go there than be here. <laughs> COVID has been so awful with not being able to go to coffee shops and write. So common grounds has a huge outdoor place. So I do, in fact, I meet my students there a lot. Um, oh, cool. and we have seminar there. So it, it's great. That is so cool. Well, I will admit to you from the gates growing up, I never really liked history until I began to love social justice. Yeah. And then I began to understand how they inform each other. Mm -hmm. And now I love, love, love history. Just, you know, everything from the misogyny to racism, like all the things it's like, you have to go backwards to be able to inform the future and just to make progress in our world. Yeah, that's very true. I loved your book because of that. I felt like it, I feel like I hold you in the same regard. Now I didn't know about you until this book and I'm like so excited (laughs) about it, but like my favorites, like Rachel Held Evans, Sarah Bessie, Glennon Doyle, Kristen Kobes, Demez. um, I just, your determination and your bold belief is so refreshing and empowering, especially in the culture that we live in right now. And I just, I mean, before we unpack this, just for our listeners who are mostly survivors of abuse or those Mm -hmm. who care about us, um, I just want all of our listeners to know, especially those who grew up in evangelical culture, this woman that we're interviewing today, I feel like Dr. Barr, you are like a current day woman who is the first to like witness and report the resurrection. Like you are being used by God to see the empty tombs here today and to proclaim it to our current day culture. That's what this book I feel like is doing. And I want everybody to read it. I'm so glad. Yeah. I, one of the, you know, this book, it, it is my story. It's my life. It's also my work as a historian. But it's also my testimony as somebody who believes in Jesus 
and that the Christianity that we are often following today does not look like Christ at all. Mm. And so I think we, we just need to have a reckoning. And um, we need to realize, in fact, I loved Beth Moore's tweet the other day where she said, I don't care about Christic manhood. I care about Christ. And I was like, that's it. That's where we need to refocus. And when we refocus, we realize how much we've added to the gospel that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And complementarianism is one of those accretions that's dangerous and hurts women. Absolutely. And men. It hurts men too. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. If we can get this right, it's going to benefit all of us. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I read an article that said um, you're out to disrupt Christian patriarchy as a man-made notion. That's downright yes. sinful. And I really love the way that was said. Um, just patriarchy as I've known it growing up, you know, women being suppressed, oppressed, silenced, mm-hmm. you know undervalued, devalued. It's damaging. It's damaging to girls. It's damaging to boys. Um, And in your book, you talk about how you changed your mind. And so that's been a little of my journey. And I want you to impact that part of your journey, but I wanted to say the reason I resonate so much, I'm going to be very honest here. My first books that were published were moody books. Yeah. And I was surrounded in purity culture. I was invited onto radio show, Uh TV show after TV show, doing interviews that always wanted to wrap my story up, my story of abuse, my story of trauma up. In the end of the interview, this pretty little biblical bow of marriage, children, the white picket fence, fake smiles, you know, and it never, ever sat right with me, Dr. Barr. Like it- It always made me sick. And I wanted so much to proclaim, you know, the love of Jesus and how Jesus saw women, how Jesus sees the abused and the oppressed. Um, But then like it, this ending was always the same time after time. And one of the chapters in your book, you titled writing women out of the English Bible and even discussed the institution of marriage. And honestly, it's something I've thought about so much how it's like not even biblical. (laughs) Like there's so much focus on it. Yeah, especially the way that we do it. You know, you have to be careful because on the one hand, we do see God, you know, creating male and female together at the beginning in Genesis. But at the same time, the way we understand, the way we have put marriage on a pedestal as the end-all be-all for women, Mm -hmm. and that if you are going to be a faithful Christian, this is the type of woman you have to be. Mm -hmm. And and that's just not true. It's never been true. It is a leftover of our early modern um, really world. And Mm -hmm. it became, you know, one of my chapters too is called sanctifying subordination. And that's part Mm -hmm. of it with marriage. You know, marriage got sanctified. It Mm -hmm. got put on a pedestal and made, I mean, in many ways it's become an idol for Christian men and women. And it's harmful because marriage is hard. Mm-hmm. marriage is not for everyone mm-hmm. and God uses all people in powerful ways and marriage doesn't really play into that. It mm-hmm. can, but it doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just got to realize that what's most important is what God is calling us to be, not finding somebody to get married so that we can fit this evangelical mm-hmm. ideal. That's so good. And I liked how even from the gates of your book, you talked about how you too believed in biblical womanhood and complementarianism yeah. and the submissive wife for like 40 years. And it didn't sit right with you. No, you it knew never it was did. toxic, but you said you stayed silent. You said over and over and over until you didn't. And right. I wanted to know if you could even start by sharing a little bit of that part of the, your story, your personal journey, which obviously was the passion behind writing the book. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So um, I did grow up. I grew up in a Southern Baptist uh, house, in a, I mean, a Southern Baptist church, mm-hmm. and I married a Southern Baptist pastor 10 days before I started uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And, you know, we both, we've talked about this a lot because looking back on it, we really don't remember hearing what we would consider to be complementarian doctrine in like the 80s when we were in junior high and moving towards high school. It really, but what we saw in our lives 
and in our families was we saw this sort of pattern of men being on stage, men preaching, men being the primary breadwinners and women staying at home. And so in the 90s, when this complementarian teaching, that's really when it exploded was in the 90s. And when it began infiltrating into churches, churches just kind of grafted onto it because it was what they were already doing. And this kind of gave this biblical justification behind it. So it was sort of this natural when we started hearing complementarian teachings in the 90s, it was like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's, you know, that perfectly makes sense. And so it became, it wasn't really, it seemed to fit what evangelical culture was already doing. And it also seemed to make sense because of course, by this point, I think Kristen Cobes Dumay does a great job of showing how evangelicals were already cultural warriors by this point. And sort of this idea we're fighting this war against this secular culture that's trying to oppress us. And so this is how Christians are different. We have this family that's different. We have values that are different. Um, and so it, this began to be what, what became really when I moved into high school and college, this, this was the world. This is what was preached to women. And at that point, I had grown up in a household with parents who really functioned egalitarian. Um, you know, they were always advocating for, uh, for their daughters to go to college for education. So I never really felt the hard part of, well, I, I felt a little bit of it, which I do talk about in my book at the end, but it took me a long time to put that piece in together with this whole sort of complementarian movement. Um, but as I got older and my husband and I got married and he started at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary when I started at Chapel Hill, and that was really when we began to see this disconnect between our lives. And I began to realize that um, this idea, what I really, in fact, I talk about this in my book in one of my, uh, I think the first chapter, where I remember sitting in a seminar in um, Chapel Hill, a women's studies seminar, and suddenly realizing that the world that I was learning about, that women's condition throughout history looked exactly like what complementarianism was teaching that women were under the authority of men mm -hmm. and that women were not as valuable, women were not as intellectual, women could not be leaders. And it suddenly, I remember this moment, I was like, wait a minute, I thought that this was what made Christians different. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly realized it was what made us the same. Wow. And I also began to realize that everywhere these type of teachings go, it's never been good for women. Mm -hmm. It has harmed women. I mean, this is a pattern throughout his, we just can't deny it. Um, you know, John Piper tried to deny it recently, had a whole little video thing where he said, this isn't connected. And I'm like, just, I'm so sorry, but history is not on your side. No. Um, you know, the pattern of abuse that goes with teaching mm -hmm. that women are less than men are completely connected. Yeah. And all of this really came to a head. My husband was, was in youth ministry for 20 years. And so mm -hmm. I was in youth ministry with him and we became increasingly concerned about the teaching that, because we worked with kids yeah. and we saw the impact this had on our teenage girls and our teenage boys. Mm -hmm. um, the concern about giving the message to our teenage boys that there's something about their voice that already as a teenager makes them able to teach, whereas mm -hmm. women cannot. I mean, mm -hmm. think about the dangerous thing. This is telling teenage boys that there's something innately about them that makes them better. Right. Um, than other people. Mm -hmm. And this is harmful message. This is a harmful Absolutely. message to our girls. Yep. So we began to becoming more and more concerned at the same time that my research was really showing me how unbiblical this message was. And it all sort of exploded in 2016 when we tried to get our church leadership to reconsider their position on women. And it ended up with my husband being fired mm. um, a pretty traumatic way. And that was sort of, that was the moment. My book starts at the moment um, I broke where I was in church and all, and suddenly I was like, this has to stop. Mm. This is a dangerous system. It hurts people. This isn't Jesus. And that's where I, I didn't know quite then what I was going to do, but I was like, this has, people have to know that mm -hmm. this is not biblical. Yeah. 
And just knowing as a historian that you're just steeped in this, this isn't just yeah. your personal experience. I mean, this is something you've spent your life studying. I have. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I, I have. I think it's interesting, you know, how you say clearly you explain how biblical womanhood isn't biblical. In fact, it right. arose from a series of clearly definable historical moments you said. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, historical context is so important and no one is doing their work. Everyone is so lazy and the laziness when it comes to what the Bible is saying is in fact, abusive. Yes. I'm wondering if you could talk a little about why biblical womanhood is more about human power structures than, you know, the message of Christ. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if we look, um, you know, the patterns of history is uh, a continuity in history is that people are always building these, these hierarchies of oppression. Now, on the one hand, our, the way our systems of government work, we do have to have, you know, leadership, people in charge, you know, that totally makes sense. But the problem is, is how we justify that leadership. And what patriarchy does is patriarchy says that some, that one sex, simply because of the way they are born, simply because of their bodies, that they have the right to lead, whereas the other sex does not. And, and then, of course, this also echoes out into racism. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you. see, I mean, these things go right together. Yeah. When you teach somebody that there's something about them that just because the way they are born, that they are better than somebody else and have the right to lead somebody else, then why doesn't that apply to other things as well? Why can they not be superior? Um, you know, I mean, it just, it teaches us something that is already in our hearts. Hmm. And that is this, uh, we want to be better than other people. We want, I mean, this is, this is at the heart. Um, we want our, you know, one of the texts I teach all the time is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an ancient text. I talk about it in the book. It's really a fantastic story. And it really shows us the heart of humanity um, mm-hmm. because the whole, you know, we have this king in this book and he's, he does horrible things. And the reason is, is because he wants people to remember him. He wants to be important. He wants to be successful. He wants to be in charge. And this is, this is human nature. This is what we want to do. And so it makes total sense that when we give into our sin, when we give into our natural inclinations, that our desire is to try to make ourselves better than other people. And this is what patriarchy is. I mean, this is just, it's trying to say that we are better than other people and we have rights that other people don't have. Um, and if you really look at the Bible, God is always fighting against this. You know, if you look in the Old Testament, he's always raising up the oppressed women, children, the people. I mean, he's always like, don't forget these people. You're hurting these people. I mean, he's always raising them up. Mm-hmm. And then he's also, you know, the Israelites are always clamoring for a king. And God's like, you don't need a king. Because, I mean, I mean, this is, and they're like, well, yes, we need a king to be like everyone else. Mm-hmm. This is what people always want to do. And then we get to the New Testament and we get, first of all, Jesus, who's just amazingly radical. I just don't know how we, I do not know how we can come to complementarian understandings when we really look at the life of Christ. I agree. It's, just, it's crazy. It, we've just been preconditioned. Um, but then if we even get to Paul, I mean, Paul is continuously fighting. He's like, no one's better. Mm-hmm. I don't care what your gift is. You're not better than anyone else. Yes, we have to have structures, but that doesn't make you better. Um, and then he says, he has this continuous call. We are all one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, how have we turned that into this message that some people simply because of the way they are born are better than, I mean, how did we miss Paul's message? How did we miss Jesus's message? Right. So anyway, I could obviously talk about that. For, for and I words. want you to, but I think one thing that really <laughs> yeah. resonated with me with all of this is how important language is, you know, yes. our terminology, mm-hmm. you talked about junior to junius, you know, oh, clearly yeah. female name changed to a masculine name in the Bible and slight changes make huge impacts. Yes. The little and, stories. Yeah. And we do the same with narratives of abuse, yeah. you know, in the church or languages that we use with racial discrimination. We change the language. We change the terminology to somehow make 
one person not at fault or that right. this person asked for it or whatever it is. And you talked in the book um, about how women's stories are covered up, neglected or retold to recast them as less significant. And then Dr. Barr, you break down how Paul was talking about women's submit, right? Yeah. And yeah. I about lost You almost it. fall out of your chair. You've never yes. heard that before, have you? So no, but my goodness, the freedom <laughs> in Jesus, if you're able to look at it in context. Yes. It's crazy to preach. me. You know, there have been, it's what's crazy to me. And I was just talking with one of my students about this last night because I gave a talk at her university. And what's crazy is there is so much scholarship that shows that Paul has to be read in context. Mm -hmm. And even though there may still be disagreement about what that context reveals, the, it, the agreement is, is that Paul is not telling women to be silent for all time or to submit for all time. I mean, that's not at all what he's doing. And if you look at him, it becomes really clear. Mm. It's just that we sort of have used this mantra, you know, plain and literal interpretation to excuse us from looking at the historical context because we're like, oh, well, if God wanted us to know that and understand it that way, then he would have put that in. Well, you know, he did put that in. He said, we are all one in Christ. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he did put that in. It's just, we yeah. keep missing it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, you know, a couple of the things that I talk about in the book that you hit upon here is yeah. of course, Romans 16. And I'd send this all my students who come to me and say, well, can women be leaders in the church? Um, and I said, I say, go read Romans 16, read it. Don't read it in the ESV. The ESV is unapologetically complementarian. That's their phrase, which means that they have intentionally changed the way the women appear in Romans 16 to try to minimize their leadership. Um, but what they have done is inaccurate. Um, so if you go and actually look at it and read the text, what you find is that Junie is an apostle. You find that Phoebe is a deacon you find that women were leading house churches and you might think, oh, well, they're just baking the cookies and putting out the tea. No, they were not. They were leading the house churches, maybe with their husbands, but maybe not. We don't know anything. Phoebe is never mentioned as having a male person along with her. Um, so maybe they're like Prisca and Aquila, but maybe not. And if you look at Prisca and Aquila, guess who gets mentioned first? It's Prisca, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which tells us, you know, if all these people who are so worried about order, they're like, oh, well, Adam's mentioned first. So Adam's above Eve. And I'm like, well, what are you doing with Prisca and Aquila? Um, you know, right. it, it's interesting. But so, uh, so the women in Romans 16, if you actually read them, they turn Paul the way we've been taught Paul on his, on the, on his head, because <laughs> if you read Romans 16, then you cannot ascribe to the idea that women are called to be under the authority of men for all time. Mm. What you realize is that what Paul is doing in like Corinthians and Ephesians um, is that he is dealing with specific problems. And he is, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, there are specific problems in the church and he's dealing with these specific instances mm -hmm. um, or like in Corinthians. And this is what I point out. And I will tell you that um, there is, you know, there are lots of scholars who have tried to figure out what Paul is doing. And I give you the one that to me makes the most sense as a historian um, overall. There are, you know, as I said, most scholars who really consider the historical context totally agree that Paul is not telling women to be silent. You know, wow. the two major theories is that Paul is dealing with a particular something that's gone wrong in this particular setting, or Paul is doing what I say Paul's doing, and that is he is quoting the Corinthian world, the Roman world. He does this several times throughout, with, throughout Corinthians. Scholars agree almost unanimously on many of these quotes that are in here. They disagree on this one, which is interesting to me because it seems Very. to me the only difference is that this one has to do with female authority. Wow. So, you know, but um, one of the scholars I actually wrote a blog post on this telling the story more than I did in the book mm -hmm. because um, I was first, this first came to my attention when I went to lunch with a really famous New Testament scholar who was at Baylor at the time named Charles Talbert. Mm -hmm. And we had this conversation where I was saying, well, you know, I was teaching, I was teaching on 
um, on the Opian law and I, we were reading Cato and I was like, every time I read Cato's words, it reminds me of first Corinthians. And Charles Talbert was like, well, why do you think that is Beth? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I would started thinking about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, is, is that a Corinthian quotation? And he was like, yep, go oh. and read. And he sent me and I went down and I was like, oh my gosh, it is a Corinthian quotation, you know, as I said. And so it, so either what it seems is when Paul says women, um, you know, go ask your hum- husbands at home, be silent in the church. And then after it, he says, what has the word of God originated with you? He seems to be being like, this is what you, the world says for you to do. What are you doing? We're Christians. Right. We don't treat like women like that. Out. Yeah, he's calling them out. And so it just, I can't read it any other way now because the historical context makes so much sense. So while other people are like, well, you know, maybe it really was a problem of these women who are too loud. I'm like, well, I guess that could be, but oh my gosh, what he says is word for word, what we find in the Greco-Roman law, in Greco-Roman, you know, writings like Cato. I mean, it's almost word for word. So it's like, I don't, it's, it seems to me it's a Corinthian quotation, it sure sounds <laughs> which like it. turns that on its head Absolutely. because essentially what we end up with is Paul, instead of telling women to be silent, mm-hmm. Paul's telling the church that women can speak and teach, Boom. which is the exact opposite what evangelical women have been taught. Yeah. Well, and people only know what they've been told, you know? Yes, we talk and for a faith context steeped in history, we just do a terrible job Do And, you know, you talk about how people are only learning about church history from history books written by pastors, not historians. That reminds me (laughs) of how trauma survivors are being counseled by pastors, not trauma counselors. It's like, yes, we're constantly just like letting other people choose this narrative and they're not they're not even like trained should it be exactly they're not trained they don't have the background they haven't done the work yes and 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 they traumatize it's re-traumatizing oh my gosh yeah no i wonder what you would say to abuse survivors who have been you know oppressed or silenced by the church's view of womanhood yeah well i can say something because i was one Um, so you can get to my chapter eight and I think, first of all, I think, you know, one of the things that women who have suffered abuse in the church and have been silent about it, um, the reason we're silent is because of the shame the church puts on us, Mm -hmm. um, that something we did something wrong, that if we had really been following God, that if we had been really striving for biblical womanhood, that this wouldn't have happened to us. You know, it's almost this prosperity gospel sort of thing. Yeah. And if you're doing the right thing, this you're not going. So there's already sort of this idea that something's wrong with us. Mm. And also that because of the abuse, that it also means that we might be damaged in some way. Right. And this is the message that abuse, that women who have been through abuse and men too often get mm-hmm. um, from evangelical churches. So the first thing that I would say is go, Go read Jesus. Hmm. Go look at how Jesus talked to the woman at the well. Go look and talk to what Jesus said, um, you know, to the woman who was about to be stoned. Go look and see how Jesus, you know, healed um, the women who were the, you know, he always talks to women. He always makes eye contact with women. He always answers their questions directly. Mm -hmm. Um, He always sees them not for what the world has tried to make them be, but for who they are. Mm -hmm. So I would like those women to know that God sees you. Um, You know, the first woman to name, the first person to name God in the Bible is Hagar. Mm -hmm. And Hagar is an abuse victim. She was given against, you know, she had no choice in it to a man to be, you know, to, for him to sleep with her to bear his child and then to be thrown out because she'd done exactly what they wanted her to do and thrown out, you know, with nothing to keep her child or herself alive. And God comes to her and she says, she calls him. She says, God sees. Yeah. So that's a message for women. God sees us. 
Right. And so I, I really would want women to hear that, that God sees them, even though the church has treated them badly, God sees them. I just wanted to pause for a second because it is Sexual Abuse Awareness and Prevention Month. And to me, it's no greater time than now, really, to think about as a survivor of abuse, to think about our own healing journey. And, you know, we can do a lot of healing on our own or one-on-one in therapy, but there's just something special about meeting with other survivors. And Mary, you and I just finished an eight-week course with a handful of survivors in our new e-course and virtual support group called Unleash. And don't you think it was like more than we ever expected? My goodness. I mean, just in awe of the response from all of the participants. And, you know, we're not going to shy away from the fact that this is a really big decision. This is really hard in the midst of just regular hearts, life stuff. And then making a bigger decision to go after your healing journey is not easy, but from the responses we've received and just the comments we've heard, the hard decision is well worth it. Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, people finding that safe space to come back to every week where you can kind of let down all the expectations and all the things that you feel like you're supposed to be living up to and just be yourself and talk about the hard things with a group of other survivors who just really get it. So it's called Unleash. It's an eight-week survivor-created e-course. There's film, storytelling, personal contemplation exercises, journal prompts. And then we meet virtually every week for eight weeks in this really special small group support group, just to walk through this journey of healing from sexual abuse together. If you want to sign up, go ahead. It's at IamOneVoice.org. IamOneVoice.org. And we constantly have new groups starting. So keep checking back. There's groups for women. There's groups for men. There's morning groups, evening groups, weekday groups, weekend groups. We've got it all. So just go there and check it out. There's always going to be an option for an eight-week course for you to sign up and join. They max out at eight participants each. And I just think you're going to love it. And even just this last time, we've had two survivors from the first round sign up for another round. So I think it's just something that you can even come back to at different places in your journey, no matter where you're at. It's called Unleash. It has officially launched. Do not miss it. We want to see you there. Find out more. Sign up. Iamonevoice.org. Go to Iamonevoice.org. I want to talk a little bit about purity culture. (laughs) Yeah. So that's been such a tough one for me. Yeah. Again, you know, I shared a little of my growing up and my abuser was my stepfather who was a leader in the church and very much so, I mean, was, I think purity culture truly does lead to rape culture. And you've you've said every culture tries to control women's bodies. Um, Mm -hmm even talking about the youth camp with the girls wearing tank t-shirts tops and yes. yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I was at all of those youth camps, <laughs> sure. and, you know, you weren't allowed to wear a two piece because you would, you know, you have to protect a man's mind. Yep. <laughs> and you said it in the final chapter of the book, you said complementarianism and abuse are linked. The conservative church model of authoritarian leadership combined with rigid gender roles fosters a culture of abuse. And you and I both know that survivors talk all the time about the purity movement, having silenced them and reinforcing this identity um, or the lies that they believe about themselves. I love what you're saying here about how Jesus sees women, but I'm wondering if you could just unpack a little bit more about how purity culture you think has played a role in some of this and and where do we get it right? Yeah. So purity culture really bursts onto the scene for evangelicals in the nineties is really when it explodes, which is my whole life. Yes. So, you know, the thing about it for me is that I kind of caught the tail end of it as a teenager um, because I graduated high school in 93. And so this was really when it was starting to really pick up. So I kind of missed a lot of the weirdness of it. Like, you know, teenage girls dancing with their fathers in wedding dresses, which, oh my gosh, gives me the Um, (laughs) heebie-jeebies. I mean, that is just crazy to me. Um, Even the the purity rings, all of that, you know, those were all after me. However, we were in youth ministry during all that time. Yeah. So this began to be inundated in our, what we were 
doing and the things that we were supposed to do as a leader. With, yeah. I graduated leader. high school in 98. So this was yes. like, whole, like high school church youth group. Experience. Yes. You know, it's, it's crazy. And so I, I think the purity culture did two things. Um, well, it did tons of things, but here are, you know, two really bad things that it did, um, <laughs> is one of them is it sort of, it focused an unhealthy attention on the, on sex and in a way, I mean, you know, on the one hand, sex, God did create us to have this. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've been married for what, 24 years, something like that. Can't remember anymore, but my husband knows he keeps up with that. Um, <laughs> so however long we've been married, but nonetheless, so, you know, but it sort of puts uh, like marriage, it kind of puts sex on this pedestal. Like this is the most important thing. And that the only way that women, um, the only way to sort of keep your husband too is by, you know, make, making yourself where you are sort of like this sex goddess, but you can only do it in the context of marriage. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be, you know, sort of this careful role for women. And then for men, for boys, it kind of makes it like, this is the thing you've been waiting for. This is the ultimate. This is the thing that you know, we'll make every, so it kind of makes them, puts it up where they're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for this. I can't wait for this. I can't wait for that. You know, and it makes them, whenever they look at women, this is what they're thinking about. They're thinking about to get married so they can have sex. And then they start making their, you know, then they start having these fetishes about their bodies and all of, I mean, it, it creates its own problem. Sure. Purity culture creates its own problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes us over-focused on sex. Yes. It makes us over-focused on sexualizing women's bodies. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we can't believe that people are over-sexualizing women's bodies and thinking that women's bodies are objects. And it's like, well, we did this to ourselves. Um, so I think, you know, that's one of the big problems with purity culture. Uh, the other big problem, I think, with purity culture is that it then makes women think that their importance lies in their bodies and their sexual function, Mm. that this is what's most important for us is to, is that because our bodies bear children, that is our primary calling and duty Mm. is to be. And so, I mean, if you just think about the impact that this has on young girls, um, minds and the way they see, you know, we wonder why anorexia and all of these, you know, eating disorders, it's because we have these women who have been taught that they have to, that their highest calling is to find a husband Mm -hmm. and keep that husband sexually interested in them. And even like, you know, there was recently that Southern Baptist pastor who went preaching about women, you know, that, um, the way to save marriage was for women to lose weight. Yeah. I saw that. I mean, it was horrible, Yeah, but it is a product of purity culture. This is what it came. I mean, this is bad theology. And let's not even talk about how, what he looked like. (laughs) I know. I know. Uh, My husband and I were talking about something else the other day and it was sort of an, he was like, well, you know, it's really funny that that person is saying that. And I was like, I was like, that wasn't very nice. And he was like, well, it's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just Seriously. like, you know, it's, and you it's, think about even <sighs> not even Christian culture, even just like TV sitcoms growing up, yes. there's always this like nasty old fat white guy with this like super hot wife. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's just this emphasizing it emphasizes what is not important to yes. Jesus. Yes. Jesus yes. says we are all made in the image of God. We are all beautiful. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all different. But what matters is who who we are. I mean, mm-hmm. we all come with broken bodies. Our bodies are all broken because mm-hmm. we live in a broken world. Mm-hmm. Um, just so, We're just broken in different ways. Yeah. And Jesus restores us. Mm-hmm. And purity culture emphasizes our brokenness instead of the restoration of Christ. Yeah. It also makes marriage cheap Hmm. too. So, because it emphasizes the sex. Right. Yes. And And that's not really on the woman. That's not really what marriage is about. Right. And I think also the purity culture piece for me, that's been so traumatizing has been just the shaming of girls of you know, it, that it's always putting the fault, the blame yes. on, on the females for anything that happens, you know, yeah. even 
to a point of like a youth pastor sexually abusing a girl in his youth group that somehow it was like her tank tops were too yes. thin or something like it was, she was yes. asking for it. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. And he couldn't help himself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. No, that is, I mean, purity culture, as I said, it objectifies women Yeah. and it, um, and it, so it devalues us because it focuses on our bodies. Mm-hmm. And then it also makes men only see us mm-hmm. as our bodies and really through a very Western lens. I mean, as a historian, I, you know, talk about with my students, mm-hmm. like, um, can I say words like breasts here? You know, in the Western, I don't know who your audience, I'm a historian. So I talk oh, about everything. Here? It doesn't oh, bother me. Yeah, you can say yeah. the F word. I mean, it, we're oh, okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't bother me to talk about bodies and things. And so I always talk about, look, you know, in American Western culture, we objectify women's breasts. We objectify, uh, you know, these are, you know, this is a part of body that we often focus on, but in other cultures, they objectified other parts of women. Like in ancient China, they objectified women's feet, Feet, you know, it became feet fetishes. That's why we had, you know, foot binding. And so, you know, and to us, we're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's culturally constructed. Um, We, and it, but it shows the continuity of how his history of how people try to objectify women and reduce them to their sexual function. Mm. And that is so anti the gospel. Right. And then in effect, all of that is so silencing. Yes. For women. Yes. Yeah. Because if women are objects, then their voices do not matter as much as men's. Mm. And, you know, men are the one who has the voice. Men are the ones um, mm. who, who get to speak about this. Men are the ones who get to choose whether they want to marry a damaged woman or not. <laughs> and then be the hero. And then be the hero, despite the, you know, their sexual past, mm-hmm. which is okay because they're learning. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just horrific what we are teaching. And I have a son and a daughter. Yeah. And I'm just like, this message for either of them is horrific. Yeah. Which is why I'm so glad they're not being taught it. <laughs> exactly. We have uh, such a big yeah. job to like reteach <laughs> and use the language right, you know? Yeah. So funny. I've been reading this book to my kids about um, extraordinary black men in history. Yeah. And it's been really neat, you know, just reading about all of these historical men and the movement and all of that, but they've all individually said, I have three boys. They've all said, why are they all men? I'm tired of hearing about men. Where are the women? I love it. I'm like, yes, thank you for, you know, because they're used to that here. And I was like, well, I just thought it would be good because you know, whatever. Yeah, that was good. No, that's I, my, my children are the same way. In fact, Mm -hmm. my son will come home and he'll be like, mom, you wouldn't have liked history class today. We only talked about men (laughs) and, you know, and then my daughter too, she, she made, she'll probably be mad at me. She's anyway, but um, she made a C on a history test. And I was like, oh my gosh, why, you know, I was like, what is this? Why'd you make a C? You know, not that I, I'm actually not overly on grades (laughs) with my kids, but I was really surprised. Yeah. And she was like, mom, it was so boring. She was like, there weren't any women in it. We were only talking about wars. And she said, I don't oh, care about wars. <laughs> I'm with her. Right. I think that's I why like, I didn't like history growing kind up of because it was that. only that. Yeah, right? that's, that's, it so I was until, like, okay, that's, that's fair. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. For me, it wasn't until I started learning about like the glass ceiling and things like that with women's rights that looking at that in history that I became very interested in that. And, you know, honestly, thinking about that now, did you see um, the news reports from the NCAA basketball tournament on the gender inequality there? (sighs) Oh, my gosh. Yes, I did. Seeing that and then reading your book at the same time and where you're talking about this isn't just a Christian thing and like. It, it's, it's been all in the world and it's still there and the church is still doing, yes. but it also we're still yes. seeing it in the NCAA tournament for those listening. It was like, there was such a big, um, a contrast between the men's locker room and the women's locker room, as far as like the weights and everything, the, the women had posted a TikTok about, there was like just one tiny little set of weights, like maybe 20 weights for them. Whereas the men had this enormous, massive square footage of like, weights and weights and weights and machines mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And it was just crazy how the women just got like 20 yoga mats and like 20 weights and how yep. we're seeing it. It hasn't changed. You know, the treatment of women has always been this way and it yeah. continues until we speak up patriarchy. You know, this is the thing too, is that Christians, it's funny because 
biblical womanhood has been sold to Christian women as being, this is what makes us different. This is what makes us set apart. This is what makes us holy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, this is what makes us like the world (laughs) because this is what the world has always done. It's always oppressed and damaged and hurt women Mm. and like how called it godly and called it godly and called it the way, you know, this is what is horrific about what we've done with complementarian teachings. Mm. And I think a lot of people who did, I think they're well-meaning. I think they really believed this, but they believed it not because they got it from the Bible, but because they read it into the Bible because they, they couldn't separate the Bible from their patriarchal world. And mm-hmm. then also, heck, we know a lot of complementarianism started after World War II when there was historically a particular, you know, trying to get women out of men's jobs. It, women threaten male jobs. Mm-hmm. And this is, this, I mean, this is part of the story. If we can get women back into the homes, back to caring for our children, because we're not going to pass bills that allow women to have affordable childcare. So if we can make women go back to the home, care for the children, then all of the male jobs are safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also part of, you know, this biblical manhood and womanhood. It tells men that they are not respected unless they have the highest paying jobs, unless they're the breadwinners. This is not biblical. This is what we have told Christian men they have to be. And so if they don't live up to it, we shame them too. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It then kind of circles in how it is not helpful for men either. Mm-mm. Right. No, I, it's more damaging for women, but yeah. it does hurt men. And it, mm-hmm. you know, and it trains men. You know, one of the things I really try to make a point of, because this is something that Russell Moore has written on, and I, I just really hope Russell Moore has moved on this. Um, you know, I think he's done a lot of good things standing up for Trump. Yeah, it was really, oh, yeah. I mean, standing against Trump. Sorry, you know what I mean. Yeah. Standing yes, against I did. Trump. He's done such, um, so I, I hate this, but he has made a very strong, you know, he has tried to tell people that Christian patriarchy is different from secular patriarchy. And he's just wrong. Yeah. Because if you tell women, if you tell men that there's something about women that makes them not be able to lead in the home and in their churches, then they t- continue to treat women outside of the church in those same sort of subordinate ways. These are, there's a reason that evangelical men are the most uncomfortable with having female bosses. And so we just, you know, we carry Christian patriarchy into the world with us. And so um, we, we've got to understand that. So as much as I respect Russell Moore, he's wrong. And I hope he hears that. I hope he reconsiders. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Because again, language and terminology is so crucial. I mean, right. you you even talked about at the end of the book how Christian Christian patriarchy continues to exist because we are supporting it. Men and women yeah. are supporting it, and we have to stop supporting it. It's literally killing us. It is. Yeah, and you know, I, I'll tell you, I wrote my last chapter, and I, my husband was a, a big part he was in sort of the background. Like I would Mm -hmm. talk my ideas out loud and Mm -hmm. sometimes he would listen to me and sometimes he would be like, you know, I mean, this is his world too. So he's gross. So sometimes he's like, can we talk about something else? Um, But he still was a big, you know, he was in the background of a lot of this. And when I was writing the conclusion, I was just like, I was like, the reason Christian patriarchy works is because women accept it and women support it. Mm. And there's a lot of reasons that women do this. Some women do it because it's a better deal for us. This is something historians call the patriarchal bargain Mm. is that we sort of trade our, our agency Mm-hmm. for the ability to have a good life. And I know that sounds really awful and economic, but we all know, I mean, I did this for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, I stayed in this church because my husband had a really good job, even mm-hmm. though I disagreed with it. I, I bought into the patriarchal bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not just accusing people. I'm admitting that I was part of the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think my thought was, I was like, what if women just stopped going to churches that supported complementarianism? I was just like, you know what? It would end really fast. If we just stopped and my husband was like, he was like, honey, you know, that's great, but I don't think they're actually going to do that. You know, he was like, there's too much at stake and there's friends. And, you know, even he was like, I just don't know. He said, I think, I think that's a great idea and you're very optimistic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but I, he was like, don't be disappointed. I don't think women are going to do that. Mm -hmm. But since then, 
since I wrote it, both of us have started wondering if women might be at a breaking point. Yeah. Because what we have seen is women all of a sudden being like, oh my gosh, why are we letting, (laughs) why are we letting men do this to us? Why are we letting our children be taught these things? Why are we letting our churches oppress our gifts when God has called us to do something? So I'm beginning to wonder if maybe I wasn't as idealistic as I thought. Maybe, Maybe we can do this. Maybe women can call for reform in the church by simply not accepting it anymore. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see. I'm I think you're on to something. I mean, even in my circles, I'm starting to see that women are really finding their voice and yes. they're, they're willing to say when they see something inappropriate, when they don't agree, when they feel devalued, like they're right. starting to say it where before we would just talk amongst ourselves and be like, I yes. can't believe and don't trust him. And, but That's now exactly it's like, right. Yeah. Like, other women are saying no. Other women are leaving these kinds of things. Maybe I can too. I mean, Beth Moore exactly just right. left. That's huge. <laughs> Beth Moore is a big piece in this. You know, I think she might, and I've, I've been actually, I've been saying this for a long time. I've been following her since, you know, 2016 and just been like, it, in fact, one of the first blog oh, posts yeah. I ever wrote on her, I was like, if Beth Moore moves, it's going to change this, this whole story. Yeah. And she's moved now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, maybe, maybe we can overturn yeah. what evangelicalism has done to women. Well, you even compare it to the Me Too movement. I mean, I started speaking out in 2002. Oh, you've been and, doing this for a long time. Yeah. And even oh. from back then, before it was called a Me Too movement, that was always the yeah. thing. I was giving others the gift of going second. If I had the courage to share yes. my story, it would give courage to another survivor to share hers and to break her silence and to begin her healing journey. And I think it can happen even when it comes to Christian patriarchy and complementarianism for women to say, we're not buying into this. We're not supporting this anymore. Right then it gives the courage to someone else. You know, some people will blast Beth Moore, whoever else wants to stand up for herself um, because they've been so brainwashed, but there's others who are like, Hmm, I think she's onto something and it can give them the courage to be able to step out. I, I think you're onto something. I, well, you know, the amount of stories I've gotten from women who have contacted me recently. And, you know, I mean, I've gotten more, it's, it's amazing how many women have contacted me. And, and some of the stories I've heard from them are women who are like, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's going to cost me my job, but I'm not going to do this anymore. Other women, you know, I've contacted and they're like, if I do this, my husband will get fired. Right. And I mean, I, I don't have, I know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I don't have costs. words. I can't help. I, you know, I, all I can do is pray that maybe if enough women are able to speak out and move mm-hmm. the system, it will allow those women who are in those, you know, maybe their husbands won't get fired anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, right. we can just think, so I don't know, but I, I understand there are some women, I understand what it will cost them because yes. it's what it cost me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't, I'm not going to shame them for not being able to make those decisions right now. And some women aren't supported mm-hmm. by their husbands in this area. Some, their husbands yeah. truly believe in, you know, I was lucky that my husband kind of walked along with me. Mm-hmm. I was sort of ahead of him in thing. I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just, but, um, but we are both completely on the same page now mm-hmm. and have been for several years, but I understand what it's like for women who maybe do not have support within their church, do not have support among friends, do not have the financial resources to pull the plug on their husbands. Um, So it's hard, but if enough women who are able to go first, as you said, then it will help some of these other women. Um, You know, if we speak out, if those of us who can take a stand, then we can help the women who can't make a stand right now. That's right. So, mm -hmm. Mm. Well, and you said you walked out of the church, but you decided you weren't walking away from the church itself. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful statement for a lot of the survivors that, you know, are walking 
on the healing right. path right now who are listening today. You know, so many have been hurt in the church and are at this exact crossroad. You know, we right. see church leaders abusing women time after time. We see men in the church abusing power, getting away with it, um, being defended. You know, abuse survivors are saying time's up and the church isn't being a place for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're shaming them. And so you see this too, yet you are saying that you've stayed. And I'm guessing your answer is you stayed because of Jesus and that's mine too. But could you share a little bit more of your process with that? Yeah. Knowing that there's a lot listening who just aren't sure about this either. Right. So I, I was, I am grateful that my faith was formed, not based upon a personality, not based upon, um, you know, someone in my church. It was something I saw modeled by my parents and my Mm -hmm. grandparents. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was something that my parents also let me come to on my own. I never felt pressure to be baptized, to make to walk down, you know, we were Baptists, so I never felt pressured by my parents to walk down the aisle. I never felt pressured, you know, they didn't like um, make it where I had to have my quiet time every day or else I wouldn't get my allowance. You know, I hear things like that and I'm oh, like, oh, it's real. You know, I'm like, you know what? We want kids, it's hard as a parent to watch and because we want our kids to know Jesus, but they've got to choose Jesus. We can't choose Jesus for them. That's good. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that helped me because I chose Jesus on my own. Mm-hmm. I didn't chose, choose Jesus for any reason. And as I started going to graduate school um, and I started seeing disconnect between the practice of my faith and what I began to know from history, and I always was able to separate, you know, some of it was, some of it was harder, but processing it and really getting back to the Bible, I had many long conversations with my husband, but I was always able to separate the gospel of Jesus from how the church had corrupted itself from human sin. And how did you do that? Yeah, I think I think one of the ways that I did it is by stand, as I said, I don't want to put any guilt on people, but I knew my Bible Mm -hmm. and I knew my Bible, not through what other people had taught to me but me reading and learning for myself. I also always used several versions of the Bible, especially as I became into grad school. I started reading from um, the Wycliffe Bible, the KJV. I had a German Bible and Latin because I was working on my languages as well as my TNIV, which was one of the first Bibles my husband bought me. Um, And so I had several different versions of the Bible that I used and I would use them. And it helped me, it helped me sort of unpack, you know, when you only use one version, and that's the only thing that you will go to, then you have a much narrower idea of the church. You know, the English Bible is a horrible, English is a horrible language to translate the Bible yeah, into. Right. Everybody makes And then choices. to call it inerrant might be a little bit of a problem. Yeah, we won't <laughs> even go to inerrancy. Yeah. <laughs> Except for inerr- inerrancy, I always say this, is a human construction. Mm-hmm. It's a human construction. Okay. So that's there we good. are. Yeah. But um, so I think, part of it is what, what I would tell people is just go read Jesus. If you can't do anything else, go read Jesus. Okay. Because that I think can help bring healing. Um, You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the woman of Canaan in Matthew 15. Mm. And I cannot read the woman of Canaan without seeing how Jesus was really overthrowing the patriarchal system, you know, with the way he can, that story gets told so badly. You know, we do things like we emphasize, we say, oh, well, we, we focus on the dogs for some reason. I don't know how many sermons I've heard, you know, where Jesus, um, you know, where she said, where Jesus says, you know, the, the dogs, why would I take the food from the table and give it to the dogs? And for some reason, we focus on that mm. instead of focusing on what Jesus and this woman are saying to each other. And Jesus looks at this woman. He listens to her despite the men around him telling him not to listen to her and not to let her come. He yeah. listens to her. And then he listens to her make her case. He says, this is what the world is telling us that we shouldn't listen to women. Mm. And she looks at him and says, yes, Lord, but the gospel is for everyone. And Jesus says, you are right. 
your word is right. What the world is telling us is wrong. And he says, woman, you are of great faith. And that conversation is radical Mm, and we miss it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So go read Jesus. (laughs) And I, that's what I would encourage women to do who are in that spot where they're like, I don't want to hear one more sermon. Fine. Don't hear a sermon. Sermons are not the word of God. Read Jesus. And so that, I don't know if that, that helped me, that helped me. Yeah. And that allowed me to separate when 2016 became extraordinarily traumatic. Mm -hmm. I was able to separate what sinful humans were doing versus what Jesus had called us to. Yeah. And I think many of us could say 2016 was traumatic for many of us. Yes. And we're still recovering. Yes. (laughs) And it helped us, I think, to look beneath the surface on a lot of issues. And we've been given an opportunity to really find what our truth is. And I love what you said. Just go read Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Jesus listened to women. He didn't silence us. He didn't silence the oppressed. He listened to our stories. He validated them. Yes. Called them forward. He defended them. Yeah. And he allowed women to speak. Mm. Jesus never silences women. Um, So that's you know, if, if, if you can do that, as I said, I understand being at a place where it, you can hard, where it's enough to even just try to get up in the morning. I I've been there too. So as soon as you are able, just read Jesus. Mm. That's a great word. Thank you, Dr. Barr, your book, the making of biblical womanhood. It's out. It's available. People can get it right. Yeah. Anywhere. Anywhere. And where would you want, do you want people to follow you on social media, your website, where would you want them to connect? I'm really active on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, go follow me on Twitter. uh, Talk to me on Twitter. Uh, I also have an Instagram, which is fun, but you know, I mostly Instagram is what I do in my work and my kids. (laughs) So if you want to know what I'm up to, you know, by what I'm doing for women, it's Twitter's. Twitter's where I hang out. Fine. Dr. Beth Allison Barr on Twitter. She's a lot of fun on Twitter. I will say that. (laughs) Sometimes I get into trouble. (laughs) Right. Good trouble. That's great. Well, this has been such a treat. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for your work. Yeah, absolutely. So grateful. honor and joy. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Everybody get her book. (laughs) See you, Beth. Thanks.